for this morning. Uh, I got a couple of things that I want to uh, want to announce very briefly before we get started today. This is a really hot mic, I feel like. Um, on Tuesday morning, we will have a container that we are unloading at the or we are loading at the warehouse uh, starting at 10 a.m. We need as many people as we can to get there. There's not going to be, I promised you this last week, there's not going to be a bunch of, you know, huge, heavy things that have to be going on there. It's mainly just boxes and stuff like that. So anybody can come and help, and preferably everybody can come and help. Uh, if you have time on Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock, we could really use some extra hands. Uh, since that's early in the morning, I know a lot of people can't make it. So if you have time, please consider donating a little bit of your time to come and help us out with that. It's Tuesday morning, 10 a.m., and then Tuesday at 1 p.m., we will have a container that we are unloading. So uh, we could use some hands on that one as well. Uh, so anytime on Tuesday, if you get a couple of free hours and show, and you know you can show up at the warehouse, we can use your help. Uh, so please come on in. Uh, definitely at 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. we'll need some hands. We got another one coming up on the 11th. That's a week from tomorrow, and we'll talk more about that when we get there. But just go on ahead. Uh, we don't have a time on that one yet, but it will be here on the 11th. So go on ahead and plan on that. One more thing, um, and I'll, I'll announce this before our worship service too. Uh, next week, that'll be the 14th, uh, on the Thursday, the 14th, uh, Nate Kidwell and I are leaving to go meet John over in Ukraine, and we are taking some extra bags along with us. We would like to fill these bags with some things for the orphans over there. They particularly need personal hygiene items. Uh, John listed toothbrushes, toothpaste, soap, shampoo, new underwear, socks, and school supplies. Uh, so that's what we're trying to fill these bags with. If you have any of that or if you can donate some of that for us to take over to some orphans' homes, uh, we would be glad to take those things along. You can come and see me. You can come and see Nate anytime over the next about 10 days. Uh, you can shoot us a text. We'll meet you somewhere. Or you can just bring it up to the church office, and we'll make sure that gets on the trip with us. So uh, be thinking about those things, and we appreciate any help you can give us with that. Uh, any prayer requests as we get started this morning? Okay. As always, I'll mention that if you're online, uh, I've got my phone here, so if there's something that comes up and you would like us to pray for it this morning, I'll make sure that we pray for it at the end of our class. Just send me a text. Uh, but for now, let's have a prayer and get started. God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for another day that you've blessed us with. We thank you for bringing us together, for the opportunity that we have to come and study your word this morning, for the opportunity that we have to come and worship you this morning and for the chance that you give us to be united together in fellowship as your family. God, we pray that you will continue to be with all of those who are sick, whether they're dealing with the COVID or whether they're dealing with some other illness. God, we ask that you continue to heal those people, be with them, strengthen them. And God, for those who are affected in some other way by the virus or by family members being ill, God, we just ask that you will comfort and strengthen all of them and help each and every one of us to be an encouragement to each other on a daily basis. God, we ask that you continue to be with us as we study. We ask that you continue to strengthen our faith in the resurrection of Jesus so that we can look forward to our own resurrection where we can be with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I may talk a little bit faster this morning, uh, and, and that's okay. That's intentional. I've got a lot of material that I need to cover. I know I already talk very fast uh, and I'm certain there are some people who have to go back and re-watch these at a, at a half speed so they can keep up with some of the things. Uh, I'm sorry about that. I'm a naturally fast talker. This morning, though, there's a lot of material I want to get through. And before I get through it, I'm going to put this caveat on it. 
This morning, some of the things we talk about, if you have never studied this before, some of these things might make you uncomfortable. Some of these things might make you worry just a little bit. I want you to know that that is intentional. I'm going to put you in an uncomfortable position if you've never studied this before. I'm intentionally putting you in an uncomfortable position because I'm going to be nicer to you about it than people out there who actually believe this stuff will. Now, my goal and the reason I'm going to talk fast today is because by the end of this class, I want to make you comfortable again. I want to bring you back to it, but I at least want to hold you out over the edge, let you see what's out there, and then we'll try to bring you back just a little bit. So, with all of that being said, let's talk about where we've come so far. We've talked a little bit about why we're studying the resurrection, and specifically we've talked about why we're studying it in a historical standpoint, from an apologetic standpoint, and from a theological standpoint. All of those things are things that we've talked about up to this point, except for the theology, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Today we're dealing more with an apologetic side of the resurrection. We want to talk about evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. After that, we talked about how the resurrection of Jesus was not like anything in the ancient world. What The story of Jesus is entirely unique among all of the other things that the other cultures had. And then last week, we spent time talking about the Messiah. We, we're not talking about Jesus himself at that point. We're just looking at the Old Testament, and we notice that the Old Testament says that the Savior will be raised. There are prophecies in there that definitely point toward that, and then there are some prophecies that are less obvious but seem to point towards the Savior being raised from the grave. So, if the Old Testament prophesies that the Savior is going to be raised, the Messiah is going to come, and He's going to experience a resurrection, and if we can put Jesus' name on that resurrection, then we can say that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior that was prophesied in the Old Testament. But before we can do that, we've got to ask the question, how do we know that Jesus was raised? We've got to actually give some kind of evidence that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the tomb. And that's what we're going to get to today. We have five sources that actually help us with this. These five sources are the five resurrection accounts that come through the four Gospels and Paul's discussion of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to deal with those in just a few minutes today, and hopefully you've read through some of those before, but we're going to try to actually read through as much of them as we can today to point out some things in there that I think will shed some light. As we look at these five resurrection accounts, we are not the only people looking at them to see if there's evidence within them to determine whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. As a matter of fact, there is what I will call the quote-unquote academic view. This is a very popular view, and I would dare say it may even be the most common view of the resurrection accounts of Jesus. If you go back about 200 years, you start really getting these Bible scholars who claim that there are some real problems with the resurrection accounts of Jesus. Uh, starting, like I said, about 200 years ago in the 1800s, we've got some of these uh, famous Bible scholars saying that the Gospels exhibit contradictions of the most glaring kind, speaking specifically of the resurrection accounts. A little bit later, of all harmonies, those of the incidences in these, speaking of the resurrection accounts, chapters 
are to me the most unsatisfactory. They seem to weaken the evidence, and I have abandoned all idea of harmonizing them. Coming into the 1900s, we have this quote, No ingenuity can make the narration of Luke consistent with Mark, much less to reconcile the synoptic writers with the fourth gospel. Mutually contradictive narratives cannot be true, and nothing can be made of this jumble of contradicting statements. All right, do you hear what they're saying so far? You've got four gospel accounts that claim to tell us the story of Jesus' resurrection, and what these Bible scholars are telling us is that there are so many contradictions in there that it actually weakens the evidence and you can't put them together, which means they cannot be true. Getting into the later 1900s, we have a, uh, another Bible scholar who says, we've just got to give up on this. We've got to stop trying to put these things together. We've got to stop trying to harmonize these accounts. We've got to give up any idea. And then, of course, Bart Ehrman, who's a modern Bible scholar, quote-unquote, uh, is going to give us this. The Gospels are so problematic for historians who want to know what really happened. This is especially true for the Gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection, which are filled with discrepancies, some of which cannot be reconciled. In fact, the Gospels disagree on nearly every detail in the resurrection narratives. All right, so we've got 200 years worth, and I, I've just pulled out you know, these four or five quotes, but this is rampant when people are talking about the gospel accounts of the resurrection. It, it's out there, it's common, and it's seeping out of the quote-unquote academic world and into the popular world. This is getting out there and even coming into the uh, Christendom as a whole. There are denominations who have given up on the idea of the Bible being inerrant and telling the true story of Jesus. And instead, they're saying a lot of this is spiritualized because of things like this. You can't reconcile these accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And a lot of it is because of these popular Bible scholars who are coming out here and saying, well, we can't do this. It's not possible. And so the question we're going to ask this morning is, are they correct? Are they right? Are there contradictions in the resurrection accounts of Scripture? And if there are, can they be reconciled? Are there issues that we have to deal with in the resurrection accounts? So, we're shifting from what we've been talking about for about four weeks into actually dealing with the resurrection of Jesus. And to do that, I think it's very appropriate to actually read the account, to see what the Bible actually has to say, and also to kind of deal with some of these things. I think we need to read all four accounts this morning. I think what we'll see within that will help us to determine whether or not these academics are correct, and it will also help us to set the stage for the later uh, lessons that we're going to cover. But I, I think if you haven't gone through the resurrection accounts of Jesus, or maybe if it's been a little while, this should be a good little refresher just to sit down and read through these accounts. Remember we said there are five total resurrection accounts of Jesus, four of them in the Gospels and one in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll get to that one at the end too. But what we're going to do as we read through these accounts is I want you to stop and ask questions about what you're seeing in there. Ask yourself questions. When did this resurrection occur? Who was there? What was it that happened? 
Who did Jesus appear to, if anybody? Where did Jesus go? Those kind of questions. Start looking for the details in these accounts as we read through these. Uh, and then maybe you'll kind of see what we're getting at as we get towards the later versions. So, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. The resurrection account of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew really begins in chapter 28. But I want to step back to chapter 27 because Matthew gives us the view of what happens on Saturday. What happens on the day that Jesus is actually still buried in the tomb. So let's, let's step back into chapter 27. Let's start there and then we'll go through chapter 28 here. It says, On the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. Now while, some, or now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had, de had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is a great story. I love reading through these accounts. We get to see the resurrected Jesus. Let's answer some of the questions that maybe uh, you've been asking, some of the details that maybe you were looking for. 
First of all, we open up with the Sabbath day. The grave is secured. We get these guards that are told, you have to guard the tomb because otherwise the disciples are going to come and steal the body away and claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Then we get to Sunday, and who do we see there? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. When do they go? They go to the tomb at dawn. And what do they find out? An earthquake has occurred. The stone that was in front of the grave has now been moved by what Matthew says was an angel. And the guards who were placed there on Saturday have now fainted from sight or from fright. That angel then instructs Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to go and tell the disciples about what they have seen. And while they're on their way out, Jesus meets them. They get to see the risen Jesus. They are the first ones to see Him after He has been raised. What an amazing sight that must have been. We get a little side story from Matthew here about these guards, the ones who are now awake apparently, and they are told that they have to lie about what they've seen. And that lie, according to Matthew, has been spread all throughout Judaism. And then finally, in this account, we get the eleven apostles who meet Jesus at a pre-arranged mountain for further instruction that Jesus is going to give them. We've got all of these great details in this account. And when you read a detailed account of something historical, that generally tells you what? This is something that really happened, right? If there's a lot of really good details and verifiable details, that's something that actually occurred. What a great account. Let's read what Mark has to say about it. Turn over in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. In Mark chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint Him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. He said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. 
These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. So, as we look at Mark 16, Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus, let's look at those details that we looked at just a minute ago. Who's there? When did it happen? What happened? Well, all of a sudden we have a detail that's a little bit different, right? We've got Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bringing spices to the tomb. Now that's a little weird. Matthew only mentions that Mary Magdalene and Mary go to the tomb. Why is Mark telling us that there's actually three women who are there? Well, let's, let's go on just a little bit. Mark's going to tell us that this happened on Sunday when the sun had risen. But I thought, now, now let, me, let me go back and check. I thought that Matthew said it was at the dawn. Well, okay, we'll, we'll, hold on. The stone's been rolled away. All right, so we're, we're good. We've, we've got the stone has been rolled away. We've got that already. And then an angel is at the tomb, right? That's what Matthew said. But Mark says it's a young man that's at the tomb. Mark's going to say that they're instructed to go and tell the disciples. And then we get another little difference here. Jesus first appears only to Mary Magdalene. And then we get another little detail. He's going to appear to two different disciples in a different form. He's also going to meet the rest of the disciples at a dinner table. Not, I, I thought it was a prearranged mountain, but this further instruction that Jesus gave them in Matthew chapter 28 on this prearranged mountain actually happens at a dinner table in the Gospel of Mark. And if you'll notice, the instruction is a little bit different. It's not the same instruction, is it? There's actually more to it here. Also, just one other thing that if you want to deal with it, you can. Look in your Bibles if you've got a paper Bible. Down in verse 9. If you have a Bible that has footnotes, more than likely, it's going to have a little footnote on verse 9 that says, Mark 16, 9-20 was added later and not considered to be original. Now, that's a discussion for another class as to whether or not these verses are actually there. But what that does tell us is that there are two versions of Mark that exist. And one version of Mark stops before we even get to Jesus rising from the dead. Jesus doesn't rise as far as, as, far as appearing to people. We don't see Him actually rise from the dead. In the second version, we do see Him rise from the dead. But in these appearances, we've got some discrepancies. We've got some differences. But maybe, we've got three other accounts. Maybe somebody's going to tie together these things for us, right? So let's go to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke's a little bit longer account. We're probably not going to read all of this for the sake of time, but we are going to read the relevant points to make sure that we get the same story that we got from the last two Gospels. Let's go to Luke chapter 24, and we'll start in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Over the next several verses, we're going to get the story of Jesus appearing to two men on the road to Emmaus. And I'm going to intentionally breeze over this story because it's not going to be super relevant to what we're talking about today. But we are going to come back to this story in the next couple of weeks. So go on ahead if you have your own time and read this story. What happens is you've got two men who are walking on a road and they see a man come to talk to them. And they say, or he says to them, what are you guys talking about? And he says, they say, How do you not know what we're talking about? Do you not know what all has happened here over the last few days? And so they relate the story to him, and then he begins to teach them from the Old Testament about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. And just as they recognize that, oh, this is Jesus, he disappears. So, that's that in a nutshell, and we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. It's not super relevant to what we're doing right now, but just know that that story is there. Let's pick up the story again in verse 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they, still, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and in the, law, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up His hands, and blessed them. While He was blessing them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So, let's look at these details again. Does Luke tie all of this together for us? He tells us that it was Sunday at early dawn. So he's going to kind of match what Matthew tells us about this. We've got that whole dawn idea, right? And we know from the context that there's a group of women from Galilee. If you go back and read the antecedent for the they that comes up in Luke 24.1, the antecedent is this group of women. And then he's going to tell us in just a little bit who this group of women is. 
Mary Magdalene, and now we've got another woman mentioned, Joanna. She's not mentioned in the other two accounts. Remember, Salome's mentioned, but she's not even mentioned here. And apparently, there were at least two others that are unnamed, because he says there are other women who are there with them. They do find that the stone is rolled away. That's consistent through all of the accounts. But now, instead of a man meeting them there or an angel meeting them there, we now have two men who meet them at the tomb. These two men ask them a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? After all of that occurs and they leave, we've got another detail that's added. Peter is going to go to the tomb to see it for himself. Then, of course, we've got that story we mentioned just a minute ago, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's not in detail in either of the other two accounts. And then Jesus appears to the eleven. And instead of giving them uh, some kind of further instruction to begin with, He actually is going to show them His hands and His feet, and He's going to eat to prove to them, I am raised from the dead. And it's only after that that He gives them further instruction that again is just a little bit different, right? The content of that is just a little bit different than what we've seen thus far. And now we've got this other detail added that He's going to ascend to heaven afterwards. Well, I don't know about you, but maybe reading through these three accounts is a little bit uncomfortable, seeing some of these details not matching up exactly like we might want them to. But we do have the Gospel of John, and John is known for being very different than the other three accounts, right? John is known for being a a little more in touch with his own humanity and in touch with his loving side. And so maybe somewhere in his additional uh, comments, he's going to tie all of this together for us. Let's go and read John chapter 20. Beginning in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone already was taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw there the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must again rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked at the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but didn't know that it was him. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... And she turned and said to him, Teacher, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brethren, tell them I am ascending to my Father, and your Father, and my God, and your God. So she goes and she tells the disciples. And Jesus appears to the disciples in a locked room, saying, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. 
Then in just a couple more verses, Jesus is going to breathe on them and say, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And then we get that story about Thomas who says, Unless I see the nail prints in his hands, unless I'm able to touch them, I'm not going to believe that it is Jesus. And so Jesus appears again after eight days, shows himself to Thomas specifically among the eleven disciples, and says, Touch here, feel here, you will know that I am raised. Look at these details once again. Now we've only got Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb, not at dawn, not when the sun had risen, but instead while it is still dark. She does at least find the stone gone, but then she runs to tell Peter, not the entire discipleship, not all of the apostles. Then Peter and John are going to go to the tomb, not just Peter like Luke told us just a minute ago, and they don't understand what they've seen, and so they move on. Now we've got Mary standing at the tomb. One thing that John doesn't tell us is which Mary this is. We're going to assume it's Mary Magdalene because that's the one he's mentioned. But we already have mentioned at least two or three Marys today. So it could be any one of them. This Mary is outside the tomb. She meets two angels. Not one man, not one angel, not two men, two angels. And then she meets a gardener. That gardener turns out to be Jesus. She goes to tell the disciples. And then Jesus appears in a locked room and imparts the Spirit and we also get that little story about Thomas there. All right, we've got four gospel accounts. Paul wrote later, right? Paul was, was a different author, so surely he is going to put all of these puzzle pieces together for us, right? Let's go read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, some have died. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. Paul does not help us at all here. Paul actually adds more details. He says that Jesus was raised on the third day. He first appeared to Peter and then the apostles. And then there's this whole 500 people account that Paul's going to bring up. That's not mentioned in any of the other accounts. And then he's got this other appearance specifically to James and then the apostles. And finally, Paul's going to add himself. Now that one makes sense because Paul comes along a little bit later, right? So at least that addition makes sense. But he's not going to tie this together for us like we might like. So... Which account is correct? This is where things get uncomfortable. I'm going to show you a chart of all of the discrepancies. I say this is all of them. This isn't all of them. These are just the ones that people are going to pull out on. You've got a difference in all four of these accounts about who Jesus or who went to the tomb on that Sunday morning. You've got a discrepancy on when they went to the tomb. You've got a discrepancy on who they met at the tomb. You've got a discrepancy on the guards. You've got a discrepancy on who Jesus first appeared to. Further, you've got discrepancies on what Jesus said to them. You've got discrepancies on where Jesus met them, how many times Jesus met them. This is what these quote-unquote Bible scholars are going to throw in people's faces. They're going to say, look at all of these things. They are contradictory, and so they must not be true. I'm going to do something with you very quickly this morning. 
I asked some people here to do an assignment. They're going to get a few extra points on their final grade in this class. Last week, what I asked a few people here to do was to write a summary of what occurred last week during our worship service. And I'm going to read you those summaries this morning. We're going to have three of them. And if if you gave me a summary and I didn't put it up there, I'm sorry. Three of them is enough to show exactly what I'm about to show. We're going to call this first summary Luke. I gave no further instruction on this, right? All I said was give me a summary in your own words of what happened last Sunday in worship service. Here's what Luke told us. Luke said the preachers at Dalreda Church of Christ had been presenting different lessons about Israel and what the church today can learn and apply from the lessons of Israel in the Old Testament. This week, Jeremy was given the task of presenting a lesson from Genesis 32 when Jacob, later renamed Israel, wrestled with God. Earlier in the story, Jacob was told by God to return home. Jacob had uh, fled home years before because he had cheated his elder brother Esau out of his blessing. And then, of course, if you want to continue reading this, I won't, because this is actually going to go on for two more slides, and we've only got seven minutes left. But if you'll notice just what else is left on this slide, you have a lot of in-depth detail about what? The story from Genesis 32. The story that we discussed in our worship service last week. Uh, Here's the second slide that goes even further into all of this, discussing the actual wrestling match. This gives us intense detail. Remember, all I asked this person for was a summary of what happened last Sunday in worship service, and this is what we have. It wraps up after giving us all of these details is, we were given a man-made name, but God has called us to him. We are called Christians and and asked to follow God. A good wrapping up summary of the sermon from last week. That's our Luke account. Let's look at our Mark account. The Mark account gives us this. Jeremy's lesson on Sunday morning, entitled Wrestlers, caused me to think of those episodes of Jacob's life from a more personal perspective. We saw Jacob from early on as his mother's favorite, and with her promotion and help, take advantage of his brother Esau to steal his birthright and the blessing Isaac thought he was giving Esau. Again, we're going to get some details here. If if you want to take some time to read through this, you're going to get some details about the story itself. And then down here at the very end, it says, Even though I had read and studied this episode before a number of times, Jeremy made me ask myself about my bouts with God. Pretty sobering. God blesses Jacob, changes his name to Israel, and his life is preserved, and his relationship with his brother is restored. God always wins, and he wants us to win as well. I gave this person the exact same assignment. And what do we have? A very different account of last Sunday. I've got a third one, though. This one we're going to call John because it's even more different. John says, After class was over, we picked up our kids and worshiped God together. The songs were intentionally chosen to fit and lead up to the sermon, and the words were meaningful and powerful. I closed my eyes a couple of times, listened to the voices of those around me, and it was truly beautiful and moving. We remembered the death of Jesus by taking the Lord's Supper together. Several meaningful prayers were offered. The message was on the account of Jacob wrestling with God from Genesis 32. The lesson hit me in a profound way personally, and it seemed to resonate with quite a few other people as well. God's Word is so powerful, and I'm consistently amazed with how it manages to penetrate the heart in just the right way and just the right time. There were two beautiful responses this past week, Dean and Lindsay. Both of these precious Christians expressed a desire to be more faithful and committed in their Christian walk, and it was incredibly encouraging to hear their heartfelt words. 
I noticed that many of the Christians who had assembled together made their way down front to encourage them after the service, which is a wonderful thing to see. All three of these people witnessed the same event. You know that they witnessed the same event because you were in here last Sunday, weren't you? You were here, you saw the same thing. And if you read through all three of these accounts, what do you know? Everything that they have said is true. Every word of what has been said in these three accounts of last Sunday morning is absolutely true, and you know it because you witnessed it. But what do we have? We have some discrepancies, right? If we're going to look at these in the same way that our friends, our, our academic friends are looking at the Gospels, we've got one account that tells us that it's at the Dowrate of Church of Christ. The other two don't mention it. One of them doesn't mention when it is. One of them says it's Sunday morning. The other one says it's after class. Which one is it? One of them talks about the songs in the Lord's Supper that are specifically mentioned in the, uh, the Lord's Supper are specifically mentioned in that account. The other two don't bring it up at all. Two of them mention Genesis 32 as the topic of last Sunday. One of them says that the topic was wrestlers. As far as the lesson content, one of them gives us an extremely detailed account of that lesson. Another one gives us a detailed account of the lesson content. Another one gives us no lesson content. And then, of course, the first one gives us no reaction to the content. Uh, the second one gives us a personal reflection. And then the last one gives us a personal reflection. And then what he witnessed other people reflecting on as well. All of these people saw the same thing. All of them had the same assignment. And what do we still have? People writing from their own viewpoints. People writing with their own purpose in mind. You saw it. You know all of these things are true. And so, when we get to the Gospel accounts, we have the same event. We've got four different writers. You would expect four different writers to write four different things. Matthew and John, of course, were there. They saw the whole thing as apostles. Mark and Luke were not. And so they're going to have a different viewpoint already. If you want to talk about some of these discrepancies and some of the things, this is the big one. The one that everybody wants to talk about is the difference in women at the tomb. But notice what none of the accounts said. None of the accounts said that only Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. They just mentioned the two who are important in their gospel account. These are the two who have come up in the Gospel of Matthew, so they're going to be the two that I mentioned in Matthew 28. Luke spends a lot of time dealing with women in his Gospel. And so it only makes sense that he is going to deal with a lot of women at the resurrection account. All of these things are reconcilable. I've still got 60 seconds. I'm going to take them. When you've got some of these discrepancies, and when you look at things like the, uh, the timeline, the timeline is very reconcilable because when you look at them in detail, what you're going to find is that the ones that mention dawn or early dawn talk about them leaving their home. They leave their home while it is still dark, but they arrive at the tomb when the sun is risen. Very reconcilable. The guards, of course, are only mentioned in Matthew because Matthew's the only one who tells you that part of the story. He's the only one who gives you that detail. Each and every one of these things is not only reconcilable, but makes sense when you remember all four of these authors are telling you the same story from their own viewpoints. So, let me breeze through this very quickly. It's expected that different viewpoints will include different details. 
all of them mention the same basic thing. The stone was rolled away, Jesus rose from the dead. Some of them are going to mention specific details according to their purpose. To ask for the authors to give us exactly the same detail the whole way through would be to impose upon them some kind of weight that we don't even impose on, impose on modern historians. We don't ask every modern historian to tell us the exact same story in the exact same way. We ask modern historians to give us the details from their point of view. We do the same thing with the gospel accounts. I would even say that if the stories were the same in every detail, it's more likely that it's not true. Because that's what happens when people come together and say, well, we've got a lie, let's make sure we've got our stories straight. The fact that they tell them from their own perspective means that it is true. Now, I've gone over by just a minute. Can we reconcile the accounts? Absolutely. I recommended this book at the beginning of our, our class. I recommend it again. This book is called The Easter Enigma. What this book does is it takes you from Friday to Sunday of the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, point by point through all of these accounts, and here's what he concludes at the end of the book. He says, maybe there are problems that are not fully solved, but when the details of each narrative is given its full weight, they add up to a consistent story. When we read these four accounts, what this means is that they are in harmony and they give us evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. But it's just one piece of the puzzle. This is only part of it. And so next week, we're going to talk about other biblical and extra-biblical evidence. This is point one. The four accounts are in harmony. We're going to build on that starting next week. Thanks for letting me go over a little bit. I'm probably going to do it again next week. So you guys can go.